Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Dr. Luke John Murphy, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Leicester. He wrote his dissertation in the History of Religion on how the different forms of Nordic pagan practice may have related to each other at Aarhus University in Denmark, and has since worked as a lecturer at the University of Iceland and a researcher at Stockholm University in Sweden. Very interestingly, he's presently working on a book about animal sacrifice. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, an absolute pleasure, Noah. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So you've done some fascinating research on the study of Nordic paganism. So this is kind of a broad question, but I'll just start it off by asking you, you know, what is Nordic paganism? I guess the term we use on this show is Norse mythology. Uh, I, I like to break it down for people, but is there sort of a, a difference between Nordic paganism or Nordic mythology, Nordic religion? How does one define Nordic paganism? Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. Those are, that's a very broad question to which there's, there's no kind of single correct answer. Um, it all really depends on, on what you want those terms to mean and how you use them. But the way I use them and the way a lot of scholars understand them is that a mythology is only one part of a religion. The mythology is kind of the stories that a religion has to explain the way the world is, how the world got to be the way it is right now. So Christian mythology would be the Bible. And then more specifically, a Catholic mythology would be the Bible, plus all those stories of saints and things. So our Viking mythology is the texts we've got, like the Poetic Edda and Snorra Edda and things like that. But the, the wider religion would also include activities, rituals, things that people did as part of their religion. And, and then we often use kind of paganism as a, something of a shorthand. So instead of every time we want to talk about this religion, instead of saying that the technically accurate thing, which would be something like pre-Christian Germanic Nordic religions, we just say paganism because it's easy. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's also, and this is something that I do that not everybody does, is I will use paganism as opposed to neo-paganism. So there's, there's lots of people out there today who are practicing some form of religion inspired by the religion of the Vikings, which is really cool. And I would call that neo-paganism because it's, it's not quite the same religion. It's, it's a different version of it. So that's, that's kind of what I mean by, by Nordic paganism. It's, it's the, the religion practiced before the arrival of Christianity by essentially Vikings, by people in the Iron Age Nordic area. Please correct me if I'm wrong here, Dr. Murphy, but my sort of understanding about a certain aspect of Nordic paganism or, you know, pre-Christian uh, Germanic religion is that we don't really know how, I guess, for example, uh, the Norse gods were worshipped. We don't really have a lot of evidence for the historical worship of the Norse gods. So is that true? And from what little we do know, what can we discover? What sort of things um, do we find out? Right. You're, you're absolutely right. We, we don't know a lot. And, and sadly, our sources aren't as forthcoming about the, the practice of religion, about ritual, as they are about mythology. Uh, but we don't know nothing. Um, and I think we know more than, than a lot of people think. So what we do know is that the, the primary form of ritual, the most important ritual for Viking pagans was something called a blot, which basically just means sacrifice. It means the, the killing and then communal consumption of an animal. And uh, some of these things appear to have been done at specific times of the year. So we've got one later medieval text 
written by a Christian, I guess, that your audience will probably have heard of, Snorra Sturluson. So in Heimskringla, he says that there were three big bloats over the course of a year. And that might be the equivalent to the way that our Christian society has certain big festivals. So middle of winter, we've got Christmas. Spring, we've got Easter, things like that. But then it's probably quite likely as well that some rituals, some sacrifices were also conducted on what we would call occasion. So so just a one-off, you would have an occasional ritual and that's unconnected to the time of year. So you might have an occasional ritual when someone's getting married, for example. Now, those type of, of occasional rituals aren't necessarily religious in the same way that today you can have a very religious wedding. You go to a church, the priest conducts the ceremony, or you can have a largely secular wedding where you basically stand up with your partner in front of your friends and family and say, we're getting married. Isn't that cool? And it's then when we get to that level of detail, we're not really sure to what extent different rituals included religion. Because you can also have non-religious rituals, like that wedding, or maybe when you put your shoes on, you always put your shoe on left first, then right. And if you do that all the time, that could also be a ritual. And that doesn't have anything to do with religion. And so here we're really brushing up against the limits of the term religion itself, because it's really hard to tell what counts as religion and what doesn't, particularly for ahistorical, prehistorical societies like the Vikings, where we don't really know what they themselves thought. But I think I've got, got a little bit off track here. So I, I was saying that um, the most common form of ritual was probably a sacrifice, after which everybody had a big meal together. And one of the other key terms that we, we do have from our medieval written sources uh, is the vitzla, which seems to have been some sort of, of special feast that was conducted often in connection with a blot, but not always. And it seems to have been something that when, a, when a, a ruler came to visit, so a king or a chief or maybe a priest came to visit, you would have one of these special feasts. And we don't have any descriptions that tell us exactly what a vitzla was, but telling a vitzla apart from a regular feast and a regular party is, is pretty difficult. So what scholars have suggested is that they probably had a little bit more myth-telling at these types of feasts, maybe a little bit less discussion of their own battles or telling of quote-unquote regular stories and more focus on the mythological. But uh, the, the long and the short of it is we can't say for certain. How interesting. So then when, I mean, using the easy term of paganism or, you know, I guess a pre, pre-Christian Germanic religion. Um, uh, okay, I think we should just agree to just say paganism. There is nothing wrong with that. Uh, we both, we, we all understand what we mean by it. Let's just make our lives easy and say paganism. There we go. That sounds good to me. So under sort of the, I don't know, umbrella term of paganism, how these people, you know, what their religious lives looked like, how did the mythologies, that is the stories, incorporate themselves into their religious lives and rituals? You know, were they making these blots to the gods that we hear of in some of the Norse myths? Oh, now this, this is a good question. That's a, seriously a very good question. That's not something we've, we've thought about until quite recently. Uh, until quite recently, scholars have, have always just assumed that, well, of course, Vikings from, I don't know, the, the year 500 or so until the year 1000 or so were believing, or they believed in the mythology that we have written down in Snorreda, where Odin is the king of the gods, Thor is his son, Loki is their, their kind of, you know, trickster uncle who lives in, in the cellar or whatever. And they, they kind of, they believed it more or less as we have it. But in recent years, actually, we've started to question that. And, and increasingly, we're asking, well, perhaps these people who lived in this, this uh, distant, kind of isolated valley and spent all their time farming and fishing, they might not have had very much use for Odin the war god. 
they probably spent a lot of their time worshipping Thor instead. And so there's there's an increasing discussion around whether it's really useful to talk about a Viking pantheon at all. And maybe we as modern scholars have more or less invented the idea of a pantheon where all the gods live together in some kind of nebulous heaven on the basis of, of Roman and Greek mythology, where there was quite literally a pantheon where all the gods hung out together. It was an actual place you could go to. We don't really have any direct evidence for that in, in pre-Christian Scandinavia. We're just going on, on things like Snorri's collection of myths, which isn't necessarily reliable for how people in Sweden saw things or people in, in early Norway saw things. So, Dr. Murphy, how did you get into this sort of um, Norse Viking field of study? So, thinking about this, um, I think we can mostly blame my dad for reading The Hobbit to me when I was six or seven, which had the effect of turning me into a huge fantasy and, and science fiction nerd. So when I went off to university and I studied literature, uh, the part of my general first year lit review course that kind of covered all sorts of literature, the favorite, my favorite part of that was something they called the Heroic Age, which was a range of, of Old Norse and Old English texts in translation. So I was handed a copy of, of Caroline Larrington's Poetic Edda um, and told, OK, read the first three poems in this for next week. And it was so kind of wonderfully like the fantasy literature I loved in a lot of ways, you know, kind of heroes with axes and pagan gods and stuff. But in a lot of ways, it was so weird and foreign and alien. You know, their, their value system was just totally different. Uh, the fact that I couldn't just look at a map in the back of the book to see where the different places were, because we just don't know. Things like that. There was, no, there was no answer to all these questions I had. And it was that, that mystery uh, that drew me in. Or at least, I suppose it was the, the great literature, the great poetry drew me in. And then it was the, the mystery and the opportunity to try and puzzle unpick some of these puzzles that got me to stay. Wow, how wonderful. And that's, that's really cool that sort of you can incorporate that same kind of, I don't know, Tolkien-esque, you know, just paganism and in these fascinating worlds and exciting characters into your field of study. That's really cool. I am I'm very lucky to have the job I do. I'm super <laughs> aware of that. Yeah, no, I, it's, I love it. It's great. That's awesome. So what excites you in the field of Nordic paganism right now? Are there any sort of discoveries or research that's being done that is just really exciting? And sort of where do you see the field going from 2018 onwards? Okay, so I think those are actually two separate questions, I'm afraid. What, one, so let's, let's, let me talk first about the stuff I find exciting, which is probably not surprisingly one of the areas that I work in. So it's something we, we touched on earlier in the interview where we talked about the idea of essentially diversity, the idea that not everybody had the same beliefs about the same gods, not everybody worshipped the same pantheon. And this is, this is kind of us now as, as scholars looking back at some earlier scholarship and, and our own assumptions and going, it's probably not, not necessarily true. It's probably not necessarily a good reflection of how things were in the Viking Age. So what we've been doing in the past really just, I think, five years is when it's really kicked off is having this conversation. So what does it mean if people worship different gods? Or, you know, people might have only really worshipped one god. They might have accepted the, the existence of others. But does that, does that mean Odin's not as important as, as we've always assumed? Probably yes. Does that mean that um, people were, were performing similar rituals in, in different ways? Were they doing different things at their blots? Almost certainly. 
And so this has kind of opened the door to a whole new new kind of range of possibilities. So we can ask questions like, so so where were people doing their blots? If if we have previously assumed that they were in a temple, was was everybody in a temple? Who had access to a temple? Where were the temples? Were different people putting them in different places, or were some people not using a temple at all? And suddenly we we've got this this kind of wide wide field where we can question everything which I find super exciting, that we can start to get really specific and argue things like, in this part of Iceland at this particular time, we think this was probably happening. And that's, that's obviously really speculative. And we, we accept that, okay, look, we're never going to know for sure. But on the basis of the evidence we have available, it's our best judgment that this is the type of religion they were doing. And that's what I, I find really exciting. So there's the scholars out there, um, there's a guy called Mats Patel at the University of Central Sweden, who's got some really exciting ideas about how the local landscape affects your religion. So what, what we tend to do is we tend to talk about Nordic paganism as a kind of abstract idea, um, in the same way that we might talk about Christianity as an abstract idea, but there are diff- different people do it differently. So Lutheran Protestants does it very differently to a Catholic in Rome who does it very different to someone at a black southern megachurch. And it's that kind of approach. So what, what Mads uh, has, has done that I think is quite exciting is suggest that different parts of the landscape had, had different effects on religion. So sure, the people who are producing the food in society, the farmers and the fishermen, they're probably more interested in Thor than in Odin, because Odin is primarily a war god and a god of the nobility. But nonetheless, a fisherman might have very different ideas about Thor as you know, a god who wades through deep water and fights sea monsters than a fisherman, than a farmer who lives far inland that is much more interested in Thor as the bringer of rain. So we're, we're trying to get our heads around these different forms of paganism. So there is, there is still this kind of general abstract idea that no one really believed in it. It is just a kind of a, a general average presentation. And we're now trying to drill down to those individual local forms. We call them articulations. So Matz has suggested there's going to be a maritime articulation as opposed to an arable articulation for people who, who produce food in society. Or we might suggest that there was um, an eastern and a western articulation of the war god cult. And in the west, it was probably Odin who was the, the primary war god. Whereas in the east, in, in Sweden and Denmark, it seems likely it was Freyr who was, was uh, the main war god. So we're, kind of, we're trying to pull everything apart and take all the toys out of the box and tip them all out on the floor and see, see what we can build with those Lego pieces to, to mix metaphors horribly. That's so interesting. Now, I suppose, you know, as this research continues to expand, that is, that is like, dare I say, monumental to the way that 90% of people understand paganism or i guess more naively norse mythology isn't it i I think it's a serious a serious shift in in just the way we think about this stuff so there's always going to be to be new research the big gods there's always going to be someone out there writing the next big book on odin or the next big book on thor and that's a good thing that's that's how the field advances but every now and then academic fields uh, do tend to have these big shifts where a new idea comes in and really changes the fundamentals and that's what I think this, this kind of discussion about what we call the diversity is doing for us at the moment. Sorry, to, then to go back, you did ask me earlier, um, where do I see things going kind of fr- from here? And so I, I think, I hope, um, that the work of people like, like myself um, and Mats Patel is going to, to affect 
not just it's not just going to be us talking about it, the people who are really into diversity, but I hope that it's also going to affect those people who are working on the next big book about Thor. And they won't try and write a book that says this is what Thor was really like. They might write a book that says this is how Thor was seen by some people. This is how he was seen by others. That kind of thing. But what I what I if I'm allowed to to predict the way a field might go in future. Now this is something that I I'm not aware of any of any people of my generation. So f- for your listeners who don't know me, I'm in my early 30s and I have been kind of working professionally in the field for I think around seven or eight years now. If we count from when I started my PhD. Now I've got students and I've got a lot of students who are interested in what we might call intersectionality, which is basically a catch-all term for things like uh, feminism or queer studies or kind of the type of social study that doesn't look at the people in power but looks at the people who are oppressed. So I think what we might get with the next generation of of young scholars coming up is some really, really interesting work um, about weird religion. So stuff like the religion of slaves or, or frankly even the religion of women because we know very, very little about we know some stuff about goddesses. Yeah. But we don't know very much about the religion of women. I mean, are those goddesses for women? Could men worship goddesses? We've never really talked about that, not not explicitly. And I think that's that's something I see a lot of my students interested in at the moment, obviously a reflection of political currents in today's world, that I think could lead to a really, really interesting wave of scholarship. That's something that, you know, women during, and again, I'll just focus on the the Norse societies, women during the Viking Age is something that I've been interested in for quite some time, and that's one thing that I try to have a considerable balance of on my show. I try to bring a lot of scholars on who um, are knowledgeable in the subjects of women during the Viking Age, but just how the goddesses or just how women during the Viking Age in general practiced religion is something that, wow, that's just incredible. It's, it's so bizarre, isn't it? It's literally 50% of the population, and we don't really, like, for all of the gods, there's at least one major book in the last 20 years, right? We can, we can point to, oh yeah, so-and-so wrote a great book on that. I can't point to any books that talk about the practice of religion by women. I can't even point to any articles on it, really. I can point to some general works about women in the Viking Age, people like um, Johanna Catherine Friedrichsdottir, um, who's got a new book coming out, which I think will touch on female religion that I'm super excited for. Yeah, it, it's, it's gobsmacking, I think, that we, we haven't considered it. And I do wonder to what extent this is because um, Viking studies generally is, is quite a balanced field. Right, there's a lot of, of women also in, in senior roles. Uh, so you've had, you've had Caroline Larrington on the show, which is, is brilliant. And I applaud, applaud your efforts to, to try and maintain a balance. But the study of, of Viking paganism, of, of Nordic paganism, is generally still pretty masculine. There's a lot of men in the field. It's only really, I think, with, with my generation, people of my kind of age finishing PhDs and starting postdoc careers, where we're starting to see more and more women. I'm not saying there are, there are no female scholars of, of the religion who are established, but far, far less than we find in other parts of Viking studies. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting, and I, I look forward to Johanna's book as well. I hopefully. Oh, I hope, I hope I've not announced something like, oh, dear. Um, no, 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 she's yeah. mentioned it before on the show here. Oh, good. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, good, good. Yes, but, no, yeah, that, that, I, think I'm, I think a lot of us are excited for that. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, and I think it's so needed as well, you know? Yes, I mean, it really... We, we, we really have to, to question these, these just assumptions that we've had for so long. Well, 
Luke, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me, and I'd certainly love to invite you back on the show uh, very soon again. Your research is just fascinating, and I've learned so much today. I can honestly say that I've, I've learned something from you today, so thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome, and, and that's what I'm here for. I, you know, I, it is quite literally my job to, to convince people that learning stuff about Vikings is cool and fun and good for you, so that's a good way to end the week for me. Thank you so much for having me. 